Hello, and welcome to Marlboro Learning Together at a Distance, conversations about our coronavirus experience. I'm your host, Dr. Katherine Atwell, Dean of Student Research at Marlboro and a member of the History Department. This pod is a production of the Sherry and Ed Glazer Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. We created this podcast as an opportunity for all of us in the Marlboro community to reflect on and share what we've been doing, feeling, seeing, enjoying, and missing while we've been at home quarantining to prevent the spread of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Marlboro's community is strong and smart and distinctive and diverse. So in each episode, we'll hear from different members of the Marlboro community, including current students, teachers, staff, school leaders, alums, parents, trustees, and more. They'll share stories about how they're coping and sometimes not coping so well with the pandemic. And in the process, we'll learn about some of the creative ways that Marlboro teachers and students are learning together at a distance. The goal of this pod is to connect our community while also recording for future generations some oral history about our experiences right now. We're living through an unprecedented time, at least for most of us, a time with the potential to profoundly reshape our world, our country, our city, and our school. COVID-19 is bringing out the best and at times the worst in humanity. Luckily, at Marlboro, we have the resources, and that includes each and every one of us to be leaders in this new educational environment and to weather this pandemic, coming out the other end stronger and more full of laughter and life than before. So let's get started with this episode. Hello, in today's episode, I'm delighted to have members of Marlboro's Social Justice and Community Partnerships Department to talk about what's been happening while we've been social distancing and also to learn a little bit about how you can become involved to support not only members of the Marlboro community, but also members of our community in Los Angeles and beyond. So I'd like each of you to introduce yourselves and welcome. Hi, I am Pamela Wright and I'm the Dean of the Social Justice Department. And I'm Javier Espinoza, and I'm the Community Partnerships Program Head. Thank you for joining us, both of you. And because we have some listeners who are perhaps not familiar with your department, could you each describe a little bit about what your jobs entail? So um, when I think about my job, I feel like I feel like there's sort of two pillars that hold up the work that we do. You know, the first part is activating students to become more active in their in their communities, whether that's through volunteering or through advocacy. What we want to do is make sure that when students volunteer or partner with nonprofit organizations, they go into those spaces, mission-oriented volunteers, and that, that they have at least a basic understanding of the target population that they're serving. We don't require service hours at So the students that come our way are students who are really interested in volunteering and maybe they just kind of don't know where to begin. Or maybe they just want to have a conversation about a social justice issue and that's great too. And I'll let Javier talk about that because I feel like that's his specialty. My other side of work is academic classes. So this is something that I feel like is fairly newer to Marlboro, but we have classes now that are they're centered on social justice. So the one that I teach um, is a social justice capstone and it's currently only open to seniors. So it's 12th graders who can demonstrate and the experience volunteering. So they're basically, they're like the kids who volunteer all the time and they're really good at it. And they, it's, it's part of their identity, like an athlete or, you know, kids in theater, like this is what they do. 
And what we want to do is find a way to make that uh, in, in the learning experience, but again, always keeping the nonprofit at the center of the work, not student. So this a students partner with one nonprofit throughout the year. So the course actually starts in the summer and ends in May. Um, but they're volunteering combined with a lot of reflection work because you're working with really fragile populations and that's a lot. And so we have students who work in women's shelter or who work in organizations that serve trafficked people. And that, that's a lot. That's not easy work to do, especially when it's, you're going beyond reading that in a text. You're actually interfacing with the actual, like with victims and their clients. And so um, reflection is a big piece of the work combined with academic research. So tell me at the rate, who, who is being trafficked in this country? Where are they coming from? How old are they? What, you know, what nationalities are they American? Are they more American than you would think who are being trafficked? So it's, it's a really interesting model. It's very different, but it's, it was the first social justice course we taught at Marlboro. And now um, we're actually expanding it into what feels like a growing catalog of classes for students. Could you describe a few more of those classes, including your involvement in Digital Presence for Impact? Yeah, but it used to be called Tech Tools, and it was a class that seventh graders would take, and it would give them like the foundations for research and technologies. And the project was they had to incorporate all the tools that they had learned throughout the semester. We actually found a way to replace the presentation sort of less about themselves and more about a social justice issue. So um, they still learn all the tech tools that they need to be, you know, students that have are resource rich when it comes to learning. And they are still learning classic research. So, you know, Nikki Gomez, our librarian, you know, does old fashioned annotations and citations and so important, but they are actually choosing one nonprofit organization that they research throughout the class. So while they are learning these tools and skills that they'll need as students, they are also really digging into one nonprofit. And it's really interesting what seventh graders choose for their nonprofits. Like they, I've seen some really complex issues be brought up in that class, which always like, it brings me joy knowing that seventh graders have that kind of consciousness. So one student, you know, she chose Happy Period as her nonprofit, and she presented on, you know, menstrual cycles and why they're so taboo and how we normalize that as a society and what this nonprofit is doing. And piece, a piece of this class that always kind of makes me laugh is that, you know, we emphasize that this is about technology and you've got this Google suite and you have for this all this technology to make this great presentation, but there's one little piece that's super old school and we make them call the nonprofit, which is like petrifying for the seventh graders because one, they like have never used a landline phone, maybe. I, I think, I feel like a lot of them haven't. And just the idea of getting on the phone with a nonprofit is like, feels like, oh my God, so important. It's probably the most important part of the class because it's the moment where they, they actually step aside and just listen. And that piece is so important. And, and we talk about it. We give them the context that they need to be like a true active listener. And we also talk about that, you know, you've got this privilege where you have a classroom and when you present, everybody's silent. Like I, I sort of mark it in the class. Like I'm speaking and all I are on me everybody's listening to me and there's an immense amount of responsibility goes with that and I never asked for it I just get it because I'm here and so when you are on the phone with the nonprofit what you're really doing is you're you know you're asking them the questions that you need for a great presentation but what you're going to do is echo their voices 
because they don't get to present to audiences like this. They're on the front line or, you know, there's only so much they can do. Most nonprofits, I think we can agree, run pretty lean. So they don't have this extra staff. They can go around educating everybody on the work that they do. So that's your job and take it very seriously because there's an immense amount of power with that. Um, you don't know who you will influence. You know, you're, you might have peers in that class who will say, I had no, I, I never knew that so many American women were trafficked. I, that changes everything. It changes the way I think about everything now. Or I've never thought about the fact that, yeah, like I've, I've kept the fact that I menstruate this like dirty secret. Why do I do that? That doesn't make any sense. So yes, it's important that you learn the Google suite. And of course, it's immensely important that you learn how to cite and to annotate, but you also learn that your platform at Marlboro can be used for good in a, in a, in a really powerful and deep way. That's so great. It's such a wonderful addition to the Marlboro curriculum. And it's perfect that it begins in seventh grade because it embeds this idea of active listening and engaging with the community and thinking beyond yourself right from the get-go as core Marlboro values. So thank you for that. And Javier, would you like to tell us a little bit about your role? Yeah, yeah, of course. So as the Community Partnerships Program Head, just kind of echoing what Pamela mentioned just now, my main role is when students come into the office, self-selected, they're just interested or they're passionate about learning more about, say, homelessness or trans issues or mass incarceration, unemployment, anything like that. I, as the partnership person, will redirect them to a nonprofit or a local organization in Los Angeles that focuses on that work in which that is their mission. And we're really intentional in our department to, uh, before we partner with students, they know with, with organizations, the students know that they will be there as listeners and as people that are helping the organization fulfill their mission statement, right? So it's not so much about like, uh, as, as a student from Marlboro, I am the only person benefiting. It's a, it's a mu mutual relationship where all parties are benefiting and we're really intentional about that. So some of the partnerships that, I'll, that I have created and that I will take students to um, in terms of like organizations are agencies like the Trans Latina Coalition, which is in Koreatown, Inside Out Riders, an organization that works with recently incarcerated youth. So youth that are around the same age as our students, and they focus on creative writing as a way to reduce recidivism, the rate in which youth reoffend. Other other girls schools like New Village Charter School, other agencies that we've visited like Homeboy Industries or the LA Regional Food Bank. I am the person that usually is the the liaison in terms of communicating to these organizations like this is what our uh, department is about we want to help fulfill that mission so how can our students do that and i'll and i'll bring them because it is it is intimidating right as pamela mentioned you know you have to get on the phone and actually talk to someone um, it is intimidating and nerve-wracking to kind of just walk into an agency, right? So I, in creating those partnerships already with Inside Outriders or Trans Latina Coalition or whatever organization that we are having students get involved with, they're able to more easily get into that community. And it's all about community building. It's all about listening. It's all about being in community with people that m maybe we have preconceived notions about 
right? So when we're talking about formerly incarcerated people, when we're talking about trans folks, when we're talking about folks who qualify for free and reduced lunch, having our students be in community with them and, and realize that there is a lot, there's a lot of differences that, that are among our students in those populations, but there are a lot of similarities too. And I would say that, uh, I mean, I do, I, I do teach classes, but my main role would be just helping those students be in community with those partnerships, those, those agencies. Pamela, could you tell us uh, a little bit about your journey to Marlboro, how long you've been at Marlboro and what you were doing before that led you to our community? Yeah, I would love to. It's funny, I never ever thought I would work at Marlboro, or I mean, or even in education. So my background is I've worked in the nonprofit sector. I've always worked in the nonprofit sector. And I was, my first job, I was working for the Emergency Food and Shelter Program, which is a grant making program that serves organizations that provide food or shelter. But that can be really complicated, right? Like food is anything from like a soup kitchen to a food pantry, food banks in the city to like small community gardens, right? Like, I mean, it, it was really diverse. And then shelter is probably even more diverse. So, uh, you know, a small domestic violence shelter with um, anonymous address, anonymous clients to the mass shelters that we see at Skid Row. After that, I actually, I moved to Chicago for a little bit where I worked for um, Chicago Food Bank. And then I worked for Feeding America while I was in graduate school. So I mean, in the nonprofit sector. Um, and so I, Okay, so I was really committed to working in the nonprofit sector. And uh, after I finished up in Chicago, I actually moved back to LA and then I became the director of the program where I began. So that first job, the emergency food and shelter program, I came back to the program officer and then I became the director. I heard about this position for this community outreach role at Marlboro, like through a friend of a friend of a friend. And I remember thinking, I'm like, that, that actually could be a pretty cool job. And so I was actually very happy at my current job and I applied. And I remember my husband was like, don't apply because you love your job. And, you know, not a lot of people can say that. So why would you mess with it? And I was like, yeah, you know, I should just, let me just see what it's all about. And I applied and I kind of just never looked back. The nice thing about Marlboro is, you know, this job, this job and my role in the department, it wasn't even a department when I came here, has really evolved. And that's a lot to do with uh, the administration saying yes often to my requests, which has been really wonderful. It just really like a series of yes, like community outreach felt to me like you know, we sort of had our feet planted at Marlboro and we were extending ourselves out to the community. And I was like, no, no, I want to move those feet out off campus as much as we can. And so when we played with some words, I'm like, it's the social justice department. Like, that's what we do. And so it was a yes. And then I was like, okay, so the work is increasing and I need somebody to partner with through this work. I need to be able to one, like bounce ideas off. It was really lonely in that office by myself. And then also like I wanted somebody to bring just awareness around the, the things like mental health. I mean, it's, it was, we were not talking about that in the capacity that I, I would like to have had because I don't have that background. And so I very specifically was looking for somebody either coming from a mental health nonprofit or coming from an MSW program, but I wanted somebody to bring the humanity to the, to the target populations that we were talking about. I think 
we can, I can do that with data and demographics, but it's not quite the same when you get it from a social worker. And so um, I, we found Javi and I, um, it was like the greatest because I felt like now I had a partner in this and we are constantly pinging ideas off of each other in the office. We're constantly like checking in, like, what do you think? Is this crazy? But, and like, is it crazy to take a group of kids to a nonprofit with another group of kids that just got out of incarceration and like not actually have them perform any service but just have them sit with those kids and go through a curriculum designed for kids coming out of incarceration. Is that crazy? It's not, is it? And so it's really nice to just have that now because it feels like it elevated our work in a way that I could have never done on my own. So I just think having you know a team and then having the support of the school allowed us to do things that I, I just don't know if we would have been able to pull off five or six years ago. And it's also... I have to say a little bit of, of it has to do with the sign of the times. The 2016 election changed everything. You know, I, I don't know how folks feel about that, but I will say that the day, the day after election day, I had a line of kids outside of my office. And, and the messaging was, I don't know what to do. I just know I have to do something. And that's, we had to respond to that. So I think a lot of the work that we that we produce in our office is actually initiated by students. So there are so many injustices in this world. Where do you begin? And it's what students bring to us that we prioritize. Black Lives Matter is because students feel very aligned with that. Black Lives Matter is a priority to them, so it's a priority to us. And so we feel like we couldn't do our work without students coming in and just having lunch with us or just popping in and asking a quick question or sharing an article they read or just venting. The thing about sometimes just getting those things off your chest like leads into something much bigger. So that plays into how our office is also a safe space for students. And it's interesting because it's not a safe space that I think targets a certain demographic. It just... It's an open place where you can ask those questions. Like, why are their families being separated at the border? We can talk about that. And it's okay that you're asking that. We don't need you to be the expert on that. We want you to ask those questions because we, we know the folks at the front line who are doing that work who can answer it for you. And that's the nonprofit sector. So that's, that's how I ended up at Marlboro, which I feel like I diverted from the original question. <laughs> but thanks for letting me rant. That's fantastic. It's always so interesting to hear how people get from one place to the other. And I also really appreciate how you spoke about the way that Javier came to the community and the partnership that you have, the synergy between the two of you is is really evident to anyone who uh, who sees the two of you together and the work that you do. And it really, I think you're right, it really has elevated the program in so many ways. So I'm going to ask the same question to you, Javier. Um, how long have you been at Marlboro for those uh, in listening who are not familiar with your work from before? And uh, how did you get to Marlboro? What were you doing before? What was your path to join our community? Yeah, I am just finishing my second year at Marlboro. Um, and next year will be my third year. Uh, before Marlboro, I, I do have an MSW. I, I am a trained social worker. I was working at Santa Monica High School as a therapist for one-on-one -on -one mental health and also running support groups. And a lot of that was centered around helping 
youth helping high school students in Santa Monica process race-based trauma and gender-based trauma. And that background is it. I was creating that content, like the, the support group work. And I, I was creating a lot of that stuff because a lot of that doesn't really exists in the field. And and I think being able to articulate that, especially now, given the times, especially during COVID, especially during these uprisings, is uh, really helpful. You know, we led this healing circle and we are continuously going to meet with students throughout the summer to just process racial trauma. And I think a lot of people lack those words because we're really not given the words. We're really not given the tools to be able to to do that. And when you don't, when you can't talk about something, then you're going to continue to feel discomfort and pain. You know, that's, it's not an issue to just ignore something. If someone has cancer and you decide just to not talk about it, it doesn't mean that the cancer is just going to disappear. Right. So I think in a lot of ways, uh, and, and my background also helps this as a, as a social worker, as, as having a background in education and also in mental health helps our students, again, not just a specific kind of student, but all students come to uh, understand the world and understand why they feel the way they feel. And they're able to do that in our department. And I think that's really I think that's really helpful because a lot of people try to kind of disassociate and separate emotions with with what's going on yet we have you have to be logical you have to you can't be emotional about things but you know that's your our, our emotions are there for a reason yeah they they help us survive and being able to be okay with that and lean into that and uh hear what our emotions are telling us especially during these times i think is really helpful for all students on campus also each of you brings something as you alluded to that's different to the equation, right? You come from slightly different backgrounds, you have different areas of expertise, but both of those perspectives are so important in doing the work that you do and really creating a much more holistic understanding for students as well as opportunities for them to engage with the the work that you're doing. So Javier, you mentioned the healing circles and this is such important work and such timely work came, I'm assuming that this came out of the protests that have been going on. Could you describe a little bit about, a little bit more about what that looks like in practice and specifically how that works in this environment where we're social distancing and doing so much of our work via distance learning or the computer? Um, Yeah, of course. Pamela presented what we would be doing for the Healing Circle. So I will try and do my best to speak to this, but it was her bringing this to the school. Um, it is something that a lot of nonprofits will do given the tremendous pain that people will have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So if you are working with something like police brutality, or if you are working with something like homelessness, seeing that uh, trauma every day or having it be vicarious is a lot to deal with. And there is a need for people to be able to just process and vent and speak about it and talk about it. And so what was done as soon as the rebellion started happening was that Pamela presented this idea of having students come and be in groups no more than eight to talk about what was going on. And they were given prompts and the 
facilitators were strategically chosen and given that they were folks who already are involved with affinity groups and are able to navigate these kind of tough conversations, those were the facilitators that were able to work with students in a way that helped students process things, but also if they needed something, if, if, if they were wondering what they could do with how they were feeling or if they needed to be given direction or if they, whatever, whatever their need was so that we could kind of meet that need. That was kind of the intention. And with regards to white students, I think it's important for them to have a space to be able to learn how to be good white allies to students of color. And I think this time in history is really pivotal in that sense because a lot of us adults it was easier for us, given the fact that we just did not have a camera in our pocket 24 seven, right? Given the fact that we weren't bombarded with these videos every day, uh, it was easier for us to buy into this myth that police protect and serve everybody. Because we now know there's, there's undeniable proof that that's not the case. Because you hear about instances of like horrific police brutality happening. And our students see this every day. so. They're having conversations that are incredibly difficult with maybe their family members, with other white folks in their lives. They want to be able to have constructive conversations, but they lack the tools. They, they lack the vocabulary. They lack, because and, and it's not at no fault of their own, right? Because we're, we're not given these tools. <laughs> they challenge the status quo too much. And I think that a result of this healing circle was these students realizing this and I'll be meeting with them once a week throughout the summer just to have these conversations. They send me questions anonymously and I will address them in the group, right? So, you know, my, my, someone in my life argues this, that if black people just followed the rules, then they wouldn't be murdered, right? And so we, we processed something like that because that's very difficult for like a 16 year old to to try and convince, right? So convince someone that, you know, Breonna Taylor was sleeping and she is an essential uh, worker during the coronavirus and she was shot in her bed, like in, in her sleep. She wasn't doing anything. So, and there's so many instances like that. So I think to be a Gen Zer means that every day of your life, you are bombarded by these videos. I think a lot of people can probably check out and like block accounts or whatever, but it'll still pop. You still know in a way that their parents just didn't know. And uh, I think that these healing circles, I think part of healing means learning to be an ally, learning to challenge racism and not leaving it up to the students of color. And I see that happening in this time. And it's incredibly important to happen. It's super pivotal. And it's amazing because our white students are realizing, you know, we've been leaving the heavy lifting to students of color. It's, we've been giving them the entire burden. Again, at no fault of our own, we just, didn't, we just didn't know. So can adults help us with this? And I think Pamela and I fill that need of, you know, we are smiley people. We're friendly, non-judgmental adults that understand this. And you can ask us, a question that you think is super ridiculous. We know your attentions are good. And this is where you can, this is where you can ask that question. Don't, don't ask your, your peer in class um, this question. Ask us because we, are, we have the tools to do that. And I think that is, we use the term healing. I don't know if people like 
I don't think we will truly be healed until racism is over, um, but this is how you get onto that path. And I think that that is, again, I'm meeting with these students and that is part of the times. This is something that's unprecedented. We've never been, this is uncharted territory for our country. And I think it's really incredible that uh, white students see this, they realize this, and they want to step up and be, do their part in challenging and ending racism. And if students wanted to participate throughout the summer, is it possible now to, to join one of the healing circles or is the group kind of set at this point? For the white students who want to learn to address racism, that is something that I'm doing every Monday at three o'clock for the rest of the summer. And it's not something that is closed off. If, if you're a white student that wants to be a better ally, then you are more than welcome to come and learn. That's completely open. It doesn't really make sense for students of color to show up. And it's not something that we want to burden them with. It is something that is for white students. And our initial healing circle, Pamela, if you want to speak to this, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that was for our students of color. That was specifically for our black students. And that was something that was intentional so that their experience and their voice is centered because unfortunately in society, it's, it's not. Um, it's usually marginalized. And so that was for students. So everything I feel like is evolving because of so much change that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. But in terms of the white allyship meetings that we're having, that is open to any white student who wants to be a better ally. And are these virtual meetings or are they happening, you know, socially distanced apart on campus? Ideally, it would be in person, uh, six feet apart, but that's... I don't think that's possible right now. So we're just doing it via Zoom. What is it like for you to do your work now via Zoom remotely as opposed to in person? Because so much of the work that you do is, you know, is 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 so intense, it's so personal, it's so emotional. Any thoughts on that? I think it cuts both ways. You know, I regret all the times I ever said that. If students would stop popping in my office, I could get so much work done because I miss them so much. It's like, it, it, th that is like what inspires the work are those conversations and um, kids popping in or using the couch in our office to have lunch or, you know, during their free periods. And uh, so I feel like I'd kill to have those kids back and like, and then feel their energy. And, you know, I feel like when I think about every sort of, big revolution it's always it's always centered around students right like there's something magical about being a student so I, I really I do miss them on the other hand I mean they're Marlboro kids right so when they're not in class they're doing homework and they're playing a sport and rehearsal and an instrument and so on and so on and so sometimes it can be a really it can be a little tricky when we have kids who come in and say are really interested in you know going with Javier on Mondays to a new village, which is a all girls charter school, actually like two miles from Marlboro um, with girls who are teen moms or coming out of abusive relationships, but are still so determined to pursue their education. I was like, my, they are the teachers, right? And so when a student comes in and says, I'd love to do that, but I have, and you know, whatever other responsibilities or commitments they have, it's like a little piece of me, I would just and it breaks my heart because I'm like, I wish, I wish we could do it all. And, and yet we also want to be mindful that we want these kids to have a healthy relationship with 
you know, even, even, even volunteering, right? Like we don't want it to feel like a burden or another thing, or I'm going to go volunteer. And that means I'm going to sleep three hours less tonight. So the zoom thing is really funny because now everybody's got time. So it's funny how many kids we got to, at that healing circle that we didn't anticipate. I think we had 80 something kids who attended a healing circle in response to racial injustice and violence in our country. And I want to say we hosted that like at three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, we would never be able to pull that off on campus. And from that event, we, we now have all these sort of byproducts of talking about race, inequity, social justice. And while, I, while I'd love to see these kids out in nonprofits and then learning from the masters, I feel like this is really special because they are at home and they are doing the reading and they're doing that work and they're doing the reflection because they have the time. So I hope that this is the universe somehow putting together in a very wonky way a foundation for people to do the learning that they need to do before they can act. So yeah, it's bittersweet. It's it's nice because I can engage with kids more often without having to compete with their other responsibilities and commitments. But I do miss the humanity of just coming into my office and having to walk over seven girls who are all on the floor eating. Oh, I miss that too. So switching gears a little bit, although kind of still keeping with the issue of the pandemic, I'm wondering how you are connecting for students the Black Lives Matter and COVID-19. Those two issues have both illuminated incredible inequalities in society. And I'm wondering how students are identifying those or what kind of help they might need from you in processing that. It's, it's interesting how COVID-19 was a predecessor to Black Lives Matter. And, and then I just want to go on the record saying, you know, Black Lives Matter has been around for years, but the, the rise and the, the acceptance of Black Lives Matter feels newer to me. But COVID-19 is interesting because I was so impressed with how quickly our students were to critique which groups were disproportionately affected by a global pandemic. They knew, we didn't have to teach them anything. They knew the brown and black folks, low income folks, they are gonna be affected the most and they're going to die first. I mean, it was like, it didn't really take much. And then George Floyd's death, you know, sparked this revolution and this uprising and taught us that we all have so much more to learn. And so for me, I found myself in that push-pull where I was so proud of these kids for immediately putting on the, the, the lens of social justice when it came to COVID-19. And yet when Black Lives Matter had this, this incredible movement, they were like, man, I don't know anything. And so I feel like I am on a personal note still on my own journey through this. Uh, so I hope that I, I hope students don't ever look at me as somebody who knows it all. And in fact, I, I try to share that with them that even my own journey with racial justice and violence can be exhausting. So I'm not sure when we'll ever get to that, that state of enlightenment with it. 
but uh, it, it was interesting to see how that played out. You know, it felt like the pandemic was the most important thing in the world. And now it feels like black voices are the most important thing in the world. And at first I felt like they knew everything that they would need to know about a global pandemic in a modern world. And then I look at them and think you have so much more to learn about black voices and marginalized people in a modern world. So it's been a push pull, but, um, you know, again, I think that students do a beautiful job of coming into this very difficult work with very little ego. I appreciate our, especially, I have to say, like, I got to give it up to the white students who come in and will own that they don't know anything, that they don't understand how to help, but they know they want to do help, they want to help, or that it isn't enough just to say you're not racist and how, how gracious they are about sort of being cut down having already come in feeling pretty good. And so there's something really special about that with these kids. I think that it's a combination of them being young and just open that they don't have this ego that is being cut down. They don't feel like they need to be the smartest person in the room because they're students, they're, they're constant learners. And I think there's something really special about an all girls school that we have this, I feel like we're a couple steps ahead with some of this work because We've talked about this primarily through the lens of a white feminist, but still, like we've had those conversations about an equity. So we don't have to define, for example, the difference between equity and equality because they know, because they're girls and they've already experienced it firsthand. So there's something really, there's something really special about that combination that I think is makes Marlboro kids, they just make me feel very hopeful. Thank you for that. That was a really powerful answer. And I appreciate your openness in saying that we're all still trying to figure it out. We're all still learning. And going into it with humility is, is really a big, big part. There are students who have been participating in the protests and going out to make their voices heard publicly. There have been others who have not been able to do that either because it's not feasible for them or it's just not something that they feel comfortable doing. Can you speak a little bit about the different ways that Marlboro students have been involved in, in the protests, either in person or in some other way? And if students wanted to become involved, what kind of resources should they be looking for to help them? I'm, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, it's a really tricky time to encourage people to take the streets when there's a global pandemic. Um, that's a very personal decision, how comfortable you are leaving your home. Um, and I never make an assumption why somebody tells me that they're, they just want to stay at home. And so there, are, there have been many ways for folks to get involved. A really great example actually came from our alumni where they wanted to use campus as a, a place where protesters could stop and get the supplies that they would need to be able to go to a march. So whether that's water, snacks, masks, gloves, signs. I learned a little bit about the history of, of how, or sort of like the origin of this. After the 2016 election, it, if you all remember, was the Women's March. And it was, it was immensely popular at Marlboro. It was like a thing. You, you kind of had to go to the Women's March. And I hosted 
a art making like event where it was just like post like basically come make your poster for the women's march and it it was huge like it, we took over collins like it, i didn't not expect that many kids to come out and they were making their posters and they were beautiful they were really powerful and how many kids thanked me for that i was i was they were like we really just needed that because it was fun i mean yes they were facing misogyny in the white house and it felt like the darkest of days and they were they were really at the end of the day they were coloring and there was something really healing about that so that happened and i kind of never thought about it again and then our alumni reached out to us and said we really want to do this event where folks can drive through Marlboro and pick up the supplies they need to protest it's because we did that poster project for the women's march and we were laughing that you know Marlboro kids if there's one thing we're good at we make a good poster and so I was like, this is brilliant. But we also are in a residential neighborhood. We have an administration, like this is like so layered. This is not just driving through and getting a bottle of water. And so I presented it to senior leadership at Marlboro. And I said, I got, a, I got an email from a couple of alumni who wanna use our campus in, that's closed because of a global pandemic to pick up supplies. What do you think? And I had already a plan B, what I was gonna tell the alumni that we can't do that because of all, you know, all these reasons, but here I'm gonna donate and help you find another spot and then we're gonna donate the supplies that you need. I think it took Priscilla like three seconds to be like, yeah, I don't see why we can't do that. And I was like, oh, it's like that. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, this changes everything. And so our alumni and current students got together and they got, they, I. I really did nothing. I, I was like, all right, I'll be the meet, you know, I'll go be the in-between between the administration and school and you all, but you all need to do the work. And they did. I mean, we had volunteers come for shifts. Everybody knew what they needed to do. Clean up, set up. I mean, it was like so easy. And we couldn't have done it without our facilities team. I think that that infrastructure that Marlboro provides, those sort of more silent heroes make our work look really, really good. Uh, so I, I often get thanked for that opportunity and I feel guilty because I kind of didn't do anything. But the students organized and I, I mean, community organizing, right? Like it's a term that I think has this like appeal to it and it feels really jazzy, but that is what community organizing is. And it took, you know, students to organize and mobilize as well as the administration to just to be open to really alternative ways of uh, telling the kids to use their voices. And it was great, you know, for folks who didn't feel comfortable protesting, they could come to Marlboro and volunteer and get water into people's cars. And if you didn't feel comfortable with that, come drop off a case of water or make some posters at home. We'll give you the supplies, bring them to us. And we handed them out. And it was a beautiful thing because Yes, we got water bottles and posters to folks coming through. And interestingly, a lot of those folks coming through picking up those supplies were families. It was a lot of parents driving their kids to a march. Uh, so that was that was special. But it they made the school look good. I mean, they I would have never thought of this. And it marked where Marlboro stands in history during this time. It inspired us to put a banner on the corner of 3rd and Rossmore, right by the pine trees, by, by that iconic circle driveway, Black Lives Matter. And nothing else, not, no other language, no Marlboro logo, just Black Lives Matter. And as you pulled, you know, you turned right on Rossmore from 3rd Street, 
you encountered a group of Marlboro kids helping people take to the streets. And they really defined who we are during this time. And I, I have to say, it was like one of the most proud moments to be part of this community. It really does speak to the power, I think, of our new vision statement, Equity Leads Education. And I notice as someone who has been at Marlboro for 16 years now, going on 17, a really profound shift in our community and the way that we interact with each other, as well as with the broader community of Los Angeles. And in the new strategic plan, it also says that we are a school of and for Los Angeles. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about ways in which we can think about at Marlboro, our place in Los Angeles, how we can be of and for Los Angeles in this time, recognizing that it's COVID-19, but it's also a time where we are reckoning with really, really powerful systemic structural racism. What are ways in which Marlboro can be for and of Los Angeles? I think that the drive-through protest supporting station is a good indicator that the students want to be active in the city. And I feel that over the past few years, students have been coming into our office pretty consistently wanting to address the same issues that are being asked of through the people who created Black Lives Matter, the people who are hit most by COVID-19. It is something that students have been thinking of already. And I have no doubt in my mind that this has only made them more invested in these conversations that are already happening. And these students will be more willing to get other students on board too. And I think that what Pamela has done with this department in the past few years is set that up so students can be active. So this moment is incredibly pivotal, incredibly important. And I I really am grateful for Marlboro allowing Pamela to set up this department and provide the tools and the opportunity for students to be able to be active change agents in the city. Because that already ex- that infrastructure already exists just via the department existing. So my response to that question is more of just excitement because I and Pamela and the students know that a better world can exist, right? I think for so much of our lives, we're told, oh, that's just the way it is, or boys will be boys, or you can't do anything about it. But these students, you know, again, these Gen Z kids, like when it comes to climate change or gun rights, uh, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, I think they're so frustrated and kind of had it already and now they just want to actually change things and i am excited to see and witness that and help facilitate that and i know that that will be able to be done at marlboro because of like pamela and the work that she's done so i think that we're already well on our way to to playing a positive role and supporting the city and we will just continue to do that Can you think of any other ways in which you've heard Marlboro students doing kind of interesting or inspiring things during this pandemic to help folks in the local community? Absolutely. I think 
A great example is this group of students that came together when the pandemic first started. <laughs> they are called Zoomers to Boomers. And it's great. They are a group of students that I don't even know how they got together, honestly. Text message is my guess. I feel like everything they do, or DM, that's probably how they got together and organized. Um, but they, um, they got together and they created what I think you can argue is like a small nonprofit. I mean, I don't think they have a tax exempt status, but they definitely have like a CEO or executive director, a financial uh, like chief operating officer, it, it, it's very structured. But basically what they do is they go grocery shopping for seniors. Uh, seniors will give them the list that they need and then they go out to the store and deliver it to them. And it's so beautiful because it's so, it, it, it's really by design, it's perfect. Like the overhead's really low. There's no HR department. <laughs> These are people just kind of coming up and showing up to help out. And it's super organized because they're using technology. So you get, you know, your client and then the list of things that they need. And the kids are going out there and doing the shopping. And it's like they identified an immediate need in their community and they're addressing it. It's perfect. And I think if it had been a group of adults at the table coming up with this, it would have taken us months before we delivered that first bag of groceries. But because they're kids and they are so willing to let go of the ego of who should be marketing and who should be, they were like, let's just do it. And they did it. And I'm sure that there were probably some uh, like trial and error moments for them. But at the end of the day, they were delivering on the regular. They're still doing it groceries to seniors during a pandemic. That's fantastic. I'm always amazed by the ingenuity as well as the generosity of our students. And that's a that's such a great example of just that. So looking forward to next year when we will be in some variant of distance learning, but also perhaps in a hybrid environment, what are you looking forward to for your department? Boy, it's really, it's hard to think about next year when I, it's hard to even think about what next month will look like, but I really look forward to tough conversations being normalized. I think that the work that we're doing over the summer, Javier is really taking the lead on that for, you know, white kids who want to be anti-racist, not just, you know, a friend to people of color or not a shoulder to cry on, but like a true anti-racist activist. You have to let go of any, um, I don't know, like insecurity you may have about using certain words or asking questions or, and, and he does a beautiful, he's so good at this. And I, I'm hoping that when we come back talking about race and talking about inequities and injustice and violence and black lives and black voices and black women. I hope that there's no more taboo, sort of this taboo feeling around these issues that we've now shaken that off and ready to like keep moving with that work. I think that this summer changed everything about the way we do our, our work. I think that we're very cool now with decentering white voices. And that's really important to be able to move forward when we look at, you know, disproportionately who is marginalized in society. It is people of color. And so I think that is something I really look forward to. It's, it feels to me like we've entered this almost like this like little 
mini or not mini neo age of enlightenment or age of discovery where we were like wow everything we were doing wasn't really enough and i hope that byproduct of this is students now having had the time they need to reflect and and feel like they need the learning that they need to have done so that they feel activated and energized it really does seem to me or feel to me as though the COVID pandemic opened up, as horrible as it has been, opened up a sense of possibility and gave people permission to think about things in a different way, to engage with ideas that perhaps they either didn't feel they had the time to engage with before or were not really a priority and has also shown people how completely interconnected all of the challenges are that we face as a society. And so in that respect, I'm really kind of hopeful that this is a moment uh, of reckoning for our world and our and our country and and also that you know we're positioned to move forward in a pretty dramatic and positive way. And I also think that having this, the students we have and their engagement with these issues is, is going to be just phenomenal to watch. And, you know, having you there and Javier to help guide them and to continue to push forward the conversation, as indeed all of us do as educators, each and every, it's incumbent upon each and every one of us in our classrooms to do that as well. And in the clubs and in all those other environments, it does really feel like like a really seminal moment. And so I think you're absolutely right. This summer has in a way changed everything, but it wasn't, you know, the summer wouldn't have been possible had it not been for the spring in a very strange way. Yes, very poetic, but it's true. I, I don't know if it was because folks were at home and had time, time to reflect or time to read or listen or that podcast or maybe listen to the lyrics of that song a little closer. I don't know, but it, it, it really does feel different to me. I also feel very hopeful. You know, I identify as Latina and I, I, I didn't really feel hopeful when we were uh, talking about deporting DACA students and dreamers. I, 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 I didn't. I, I'll own this. And, you know, when kids were put, being put in cages at the border, families being separated, I, I didn't feel hopeful at all. It felt to me like that was our problem and we needed to figure it out. And now when I see this Black Lives Matter movement and I see the buy-in of other groups, that to me feels powerful and that feels different. And yes, kids are still being locked up in cages and, you know, there's still so much work to do in our community. I, I am so, I, there's so much joy in seeing Black lives prioritized for the first time. And it's a shame that they have to be validated by people who don't identify as Black, but that's different. And that's something that I think makes this like truly a game changer. It's really exciting to be a social justice teacher during this time. There's so much tragedy, of course, but my goodness, like if, if not now, when would Marlboro have a Department of Social Justice and Community Partnerships? You're absolutely right. We have enormous privilege at Marlboro, and with that privilege comes enormous responsibility. And I am so thrilled that, and so frankly, moved by the fact that this has become such a priority for the school, because it needs to be everyone's priority. 
Thank you so much for a really enlightening and important conversation today. It has been just such a delight to talk with both of you. And uh, I'd just like to open it up to see if you have any last words. Thank you. I mean, for this opportunity to do this. It's 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 interesting because as, as we wrap this up, it feels almost healing to have say like to set out loud what we do. I think because in the day-to-day, we're just in the work. And when I was listening to Javier speak, I was like, oh my God, I'm so proud of him. Like that, how cool that I know that guy. Or even when I was talking about my own work, I was like, yeah, that's right. I do that. And so it was really nice. It was, it was kind of a, it was kind of, like I said, healing or almost like therapeutic for myself to say the thing that we do out loud, but I am really proud of the work that we do. And I really stand by it. I think it makes us as an institution uh, really special. I think it makes us different. And I look forward to continuing to grow department and this work and and working in partnership with the other departments and making this truly interdisciplinary. To me, it feels like we're just getting warmed up. Thank you again. So that's it for this installment of Marlboro Together at a Distance. I'm Dr. Atwell, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time to hear more about how our Marlboro community is living and learning through the coronavirus experience. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or suggest someone to be interviewed, please email me at katherine.atwell at marlboro.org. This show is a production of the Sherry and Ed Glazer Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Our producer and the composer of our theme song is the amazing Eric Weza. Thanks so much, Eric, for all of your hard work on this and all projects in the CEI. Thanks also to Regina Rosie Mitchell, the director of the CEI, and of course, Dr. Sands and the rest of Marlboro's incredible administrative team for supporting us all as we learn together at a distance. See you next time.